Welcome to this special post-spring statement edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, director of the IFS. I'm joined today in person for the first time on the IFS Zooms In by two of my colleagues, Carl Emerson and Robert Joyce, who are both deputy directors here at the IFS. And it's just over 24 hours since Rishi Sunak sat down and we've had a little bit of time to digest what he said and what the impact of his changes are likely to be. We've looked at the consequences for the public finances, for public spending, and of course, for household budgets. Been an awful lot of coverage of it, not very much of it very positive, it has to be said, over the last several hours. Carl, do you think that negative response is entirely justified? Did the Chancellor really fail to achieve anything terribly useful yesterday? Well, I guess the first point is that the outlook for the economy is worse than it was in October, and it's predominantly worse because of events which are entirely outside of the Chancellor's control. The huge increase in energy prices that occurred up until January, in fact, and then the even larger increase that occurred since then with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that's essentially pushing up the price of oil, of gas that the UK imports from overseas. It makes us poorer. The Chancellor couldn't wave a magic wand and make all that difficulty go away. All he could do was choose between borrowing more money now to try and ease some of the pain in the near run or allocate the pain differently between public services, businesses and different types of households. But it wasn't an exercise where he could say, don't worry, I can make all these difficulties go away. But overall, Rob, I think your analysis suggests that both in the short run and in the medium run, if you take everything in the round, everything that's going to come in over the next year and over the next several years, this was a pretty progressive package of measures. It is. Broadly, in terms of the things the government is explicitly choosing to do, it is a broadly progressive package. And that's essentially because we have some increases to direct taxes, the Nick's rate increase in particular and freezes to income tax thresholds and they the, the losses from that tend to be concentrated higher up the income distribution which is where most of the, the earnings and incomes are and there's also the broadly universal flat rate package of support for energy costs that was announced last month which is say, broadly a, a flat rate giveaway across the income distribution therefore more proportionally for those on lower incomes and also we've just had an increase as well to universal credit for those in work. You put those factors together along with a few other things coming into play as well, and that is a broadly progressive package. I think the main thing to say about that is that in some ways, the least progressive aspect of what's happening is what the government isn't doing, because what all of that misses is that the, the, the default way that the government sets policy for those on benefits, and hence predominantly on lower incomes, involves a big real benefit cut this year. And the reason for that is because the government uprates benefits in line with a somewhat lagged measure of inflation. So when inflation is increasing, that's not enough to keep pace in, in, in real time with what's happening to prices. So that's not a reform. That's what the government has always done. But it has the effect right now of, of cutting real income to many of the poorest. And the government has chosen not to do anything or not to do much about that besides the flat rate support package that I mentioned. And for me, that's one of the big puzzles in this whole package. The Chancellor knew that the real value of benefits uh, this coming financial year was going to be a lot 
lower. I mean, he knew it. His officials will have been telling him. We've been telling him. Virtually every think tank in the country has been telling him that. It wouldn't have cost him anything in the long run to have increased benefits this time round. And it would have saved him an awful lot of flack today and probably over the next few weeks, as well as helping some of the poorest people around. Have you, have you got a sense of why he chose not to do what, frankly, seems to me to be a pretty obvious policy? It's a little difficult to put my finger on it. There's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. One thought is, it seems, given that they introduced this, this flat rate package of support, which equates to about £350 for most households over the coming financial year through a couple of grants, one of which, by the way, will be recouped subsequently. Given that they announced that almost universal package of support, it seems like they wanted to help more than just the smaller group on benefits with these cost increases. Now, having done that through this fairly universalist approach, had they also done something to benefits, then actually I suppose benefit recipients would have seen overall a real increase because they'd have got an inflationary uprate in their benefits as one might think they should get plus this grant. Maybe he thought he didn't want to do that. Another point is that there is a, an awkwardness here in that for those not on universal credit, which is the new means-tested benefit that we have in the UK, for slightly arcane operational administrative reasons, it appears that it's very difficult to change the older benefits and indeed pensions quickly. And there are still people on those older working age benefits as well as obviously people receiving pensions. And so there may have been some awkwardness if the government had said, well, we're able to, to quickly adjust universal credit amounts to keep pace with the picture for what's happening with inflation, but we can't do that for you for you people on uh, on the other benefits. Now, it would seem a shame to me if you can't help millions of people just because there are others, just because there are others who wouldn't be able to be to be helped in the same way. But perhaps that is playing into the, the political calculus in some way here. But it, it is a bit of a mystery to me why they don't just do what would seem sensible. Good, good, good effort, uh, a good effort at defence, but I'm not sure I buy it. I mean, let's not forget that universal credit was increased by £20 a week over the pandemic, but the so-called legacy benefits yeah. weren't. And indeed, the sooner you announce this stuff, the sooner it can actually happen. So uh, it seems uh, it's difficult to know, but it seems like an odd choice. Now, this was overall a, a progressive package, but, but Carl, it was, if we're looking into the future, this is still very much a Chancellor who's going to be presiding over some pretty big tax rises. Yes, and that might seem a peculiar statement in the sense that if you just looked at the measures announced on Wednesday in the spring statement by Mr Sunak, you would see some pretty sizable tax cuts. And indeed, comparing historically, you have to go all the way back to autumn of 1995 to see a bigger set of tax cuts in a statement. So that raises a question, why, why are people talking about the tax burden going up and Mr Sunak pushing taxes up? And the answer is that in the last calendar year, the combined effect of the policies the government set out was the biggest set of tax raising measures in any calendar year announced all the way back to since 1993. And not only that, those tax raising measures in this new environment where inflation is much higher are actually expected to raise lots more money than was bought a year ago. So Mr. Sunak has said that the point at which you start to pay income tax, the point at which you start to pay higher rate income tax, are both going to be frozen for four years. In a high inflation world, that raises the government much more money than it would have done. It also hits households for much more than it would have done. And the overall effect there is that the pretty sizable tax cuts we heard about yesterday 
are essentially just taking the edge off the fact that the tax rises are even bigger than had previously been intended. And so as a result, the tax burden is expected to be bigger than what it was thought to be in October. It's increasing faster and it's going to reach the highest level since roughly 1950. I think one of the quite remarkable findings from your analysis was that the basic rate of taxes falling in 2024, it's going down one pence, that costs about six or seven billion pounds, but that's not going to reduce the amount of income tax revenue that comes in at all because of this freezing in the personal allowance of the thresholds. Indeed, I think Mr. Sunak would be hard pushed to be able to claim he was even reducing the overall burden of income tax, let alone the burden of taxes overall. And that's despite, as you say, the fact that he's planning to cut at least one of the key parameters in income tax, taking that basic rate down from 20p to 19p in April 2024. And it's purely because in that same year, he is planning to freeze again the point at which you start to pay income tax, the point at which you start to pay higher rate tax. Given higher inflation, that's having an upwards pressure on nominal income, more people we brought into tax, and that's just about getting him enough money in that year to pay for that basic rate cut. And the consequence of all this, Rob, is some really quite big tax rises, particularly for people towards the top of the income distribution. I mean, what what sort of scale of tax rises are we looking at here? Well, if we take the analysis all, all the way out to 2025, so we're incorporating there the fact that these income tax thresholds would have been frozen for four years at a time of high inflation, which means under current inflation forecasts, a real cut in those thresholds of about 16%. So if we're including the effect of all of that up to about 2025, then uh, we're now looking at, for example, for anyone on more than about £50,000 a year, the, the increase in direct tax liabilities overall from combining both national insurance and income tax changes is well over £1,000 per year for pretty much all of that group. For basic rate taxpayers, it's now an increase of something 250 to £300 per year by 2025, depending on exactly what their earnings are. So it's pretty substantial. And, and that is in large part, again, unintended in the sense that it's it's because these income tax threshold freezes are much bigger than uh, than was originally planned. I suppose originally unintended, but of course, uh, Charles could have undone it. He knows uh, now. Yes, done it yesterday. So in that sense, it is intended. Interesting fact that I think, as it were, not many people know this, is that if you look over the period since 2010, there have been some quite big tax rises in general, haven't there, on people in the top of the income distribution, particularly actually the just the top few percent of the income distribution. Yeah, that's right. I think maybe maybe that's still a little underappreciated. If, if we, we look at the decade of the 2010s and the distributional effects of changes to personal taxes and benefits over that period, you've got a pretty broad group in the bottom third or so, concentrated amongst the working age portion of that group, who lost a lot proportionally because of all the benefit cuts over that period. And the other group who, who lost a lot proportionally were the very top. And as you said, not really even the top decile particularly. It was really the top 1% or so where much of that was concentrated. There are a number of changes there to top rates of income tax, treatment of pension contributions for very high income people and so on. So what's happening now in some ways continues that pattern in that broadly speaking, higher earners are being hit quite a lot by tax rises. Although what we're seeing now is more broad based. It's not so 
finely concentrated just on that top one percent or so it's you know the top decile on the top fifth in general who tend to pay most of the extra income tax when you do that sort of these broad-based income tax increases and i think that's one of the interesting differences between what's happening at the moment and what happened in the 2010s in the 2010s the poor got seriously clobbered with some big benefit cuts and the very rich got seriously clobbered with some big tax increases and people broadly in the middle and the upper part of the middle were quite well protected in a period of austerity. It was quite remarkable. I think what politically might be difficult for Mr Sunak this time round is that quite a lot of people in the upper middle and the middle are going to get hit quite hard. Yeah, that is an important difference. I and mean, of course, people around the middle over the last decade were still suffering often in other ways, in particular from a terrible performance of, of real earnings. But that's still going to be true now, if, yeah. if anything, even more so for the next year or so. I think this may be one of the political difficulties that the government faces over the next few years. And Carl, we've talked so far a lot about taxes and living standards. The Chancellor didn't say anything about spending yesterday, did he? But in saying nothing, actually quite a lot's changed. Indeed, in the coming year, it's a bit like the story Rob was telling about benefits. By not talking about it, it's a uh... It means you've made the system a bit less generous than what you've intended. And what I mean by that is that back in October, the Chancellor set out a set of spending plans for different public services. So we found out about health, schools, defence, etc. And that was all predicated on expectations of inflation at the time. And I presume the Treasury also took a view about what was likely to be required in terms of paying public sector workers over the next three to four years. Now, inflation, as we've been talking, has increased substantially and is expected or will be very high for some time to come, the Chancellor in the spring statement could have chosen to top those spending plans up. He chose not to. That means that in real terms, those spending plans won't go as far. It's hard to say exactly how big a deal that is. It will depend on exactly what each department is planning to spend their money on. But you can clearly imagine some departments with obviously many public sector workers, are they going to try and keep to the kind of pay growth they were planning back last October? And therefore, public sector workers will be facing yet another real-term squeeze in their pay on top of the squeeze that they've had over the last decade. And other departments or some departments will have pretty substantial energy bills, schools and hospitals, and obviously also the defence budget. And that's going to eat into their budgets by more than what would have been expected in October. So it doesn't mean that Spending plans overall uh, imply a return to austerity or cuts, but it's certainly a lower growth rate of spending in real terms than what was intended. I think it pretty much guarantees that while public sector workers are likely to see some cash increase in their salaries over the next few years, they're unlikely to keep pace perhaps with even what the private sector is getting, let alone what you see in terms of inflation in the economy. And that's, I think, going to be another political headache for the government. Um, as you say, public sector workers have fallen behind the private sector over the last decade, and indeed have had a small real terms loss since 2010, whilst the private sector have seen at least small real increases over that period. And if we get further big, potentially big real terms cuts, then there's going to be a lot of unhappy nurses, teachers, soldiers, civil servants, uh, and so on. I mean, one, one thing the Chancellor might be planning here, of course, through the pandemic, we saw him return again and again outside of standard fiscal events. And maybe what he's got in the back of his mind is, well, when we get closer to, say, October, we find out what's going to happen to household energy bills then. We find out a bit more about how uncertainty the economy is playing out. 
you get more evidence in the pay review bodies, perhaps at that point, he's thinking, well, I'll make decisions then about what to do for, on the one hand, low-income households, on the other hand, what to do about these public service settlements and whether to top them up. But he, he certainly gave no indication that that's what he was planning yesterday. And it strikes me it'll be a bit of a, certainly on the sort of, in terms of benefit recipients, to come back now, uh, or indeed any time before the budget and say he's going to do more for them, given that we know quite a lot about what's happening to inflation, would would I, I think politically would just be an admission of a mistake, and maybe he should just come back and admit he's made a mistake. So, so what what we've heard is that there's some big tax rises, and the spending is not going up in real terms as much as intended. So, so where are we with the public finances? Well, in terms of the deficits, the gap between the amount the government gets in revenue and the amount it's spending. In the current financial year, the government's had some good news in recent months. Unemployment has been lower than what has been expected and receipts have come in pretty strongly. So borrowing is going to be a bit lower than they thought and quite a bit lower than they thought, although still at a relatively high level. In the coming financial year, while it is true that this higher inflation combined with those frozen thresholds is going to mean lots more revenue in cash terms coming into the exchequer, despite the fact they're not topping up spending plans for public services, they're expecting to spend a lot more on debt interest. And that's because getting on for a quarter of the government's debt is automatically linked to a relatively poor measure of inflation, the RPI. That's very running very, very high at the moment. It means that we're going to spend almost twice as much on debt interest in the coming year to what we expected just in October. Now, the good news is that if when inflation returns back to normal levels, that part of the debt interest bill will come back down again to more normal levels. There's another part of the debt interest bill, which is to do with the way in which the Bank of England manages quantitative easing. That part is becoming a bit more expensive for government. Essentially, as the Bank of England pushes up the bank rate, it makes the financing of that a bit more expensive. So we are going to be spending more on debt interest over coming years. The government is getting a bit more in receipts. We've talked about that rise in the tax burden. Overall, what that means is that the Chancellor remains compliant with his two fiscal targets, not with a huge amount of wiggle room, but he's getting the deficit back down to the kind of levels he's he's comfortable with. And in terms of the overall debt stock, that is just about set to start falling again, having risen sharply during the pandemic. And put all that together, I think I come back to what I was saying right at the beginning is this is the sort of balancing act the Chancellor has had to put in place in order to get to what he feels is a suitable fiscal situation, not too much borrowing in the future. He's had to raise taxes, even if he's called himself a tax-cutting Chancellor, he's had no choice but to raise taxes. And he's taken some money in real terms out of the public services, all of which reflecting the fact that we are, as a country, as you said right at the beginning, we are just poorer than we thought we were going to be. And if we're just poorer, then that's going to mean less money for us and less money for public services. But let, let's, Rob, just delve a little bit more into that issue of we are just poorer. There was a very striking statement, wasn't there, in the Office of Budget Responsibility document saying that we're likely to see a bigger fall in income this coming year than in any single year since the late 1950s. That sounds pretty dramatic. That's right, yeah. And for, for the earnings of those in work, probably the biggest single year fall in, in, in earnings since the 70s. And as you say, for, 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 the, for a measure of disposable household income that the OBR looks at, the biggest single year fall since, since the 50s. Now, during the financial crisis of the late 2000s, there was a, a, a period where earnings fell for several years. 
Uh, it may be that we don't see that. So it may be that the, the cumulative fall that we're about to see isn't quite as severe in total as a more prolonged one that we saw in the, the late 2000s recession. But in terms of the, the sharp adjustment over a single year, certainly what we're about to see, given this very high inflation, is close to unprecedented in, 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 in recent decades in the UK. And comes off the back of some pretty dreadful income and earnings growth for quite a long period. Exactly. So if you zoom out a little bit and put this together with what we've already seen happening since around 2008, it means that according to the the latest estimates, really even by the mid-2020s, we're still going to be barely nudging above the levels of real earnings that we had before the financial crisis in 2008. So we had this period where earnings were growing pretty consistently and reasonably robustly for the 90s and, and, and the 2000s up to 2008. Then we saw real terms falls in earnings. We then saw very stuttering recoveries, one of them just about getting going in the mid-2010s before the Brexit vote and the rise in inflation after that choked it off. Another one just about looking like it was getting going before the pandemic hit. And now, of course, what we're seeing now with with the rapid rise in, in, in inflation, meaning another fall in real earnings. So, yeah, you put all that together. We've got this extraordinarily long period, almost 20 years, it looks like it will be with basically no change overall in, in real earnings. 20 years. I mean, that's. I think, I think that's the first time I've heard someone say 20 years with no increase in real earnings. That really is deeply depressing. And to put that in historical context, I think it's fair to say nothing remotely like that has ever happened before in recorded history in this country, at least not since the Industrial Revolution when earnings really started to increase. And we can look at the unprecedented one-year hit this year, but the bigger story of earnings and incomes not really rising is, is is perhaps the way well, certainly the more important one over a long period uh, and just just to end up i mean that takes us to another issue that people have raised with respect to uh, what we saw yesterday and what we've seen over the last year or so which is which is this uh, issue about which generations are winning and losing here because there's been an increase which was announced a month or so ago to repayments for for recent graduates on their student loans the increase in national insurance contributions, which really only affects people of working age. And of course, this reduction in the basic rate of income tax affects everyone. Put that on top of a, a long period, as you say, Rob, of no increases in earnings, whilst pensioner incomes have actually have been rising, and then ultra low interest rates for more than a decade. This other thing that's happening and, and is continuing to happen, isn't it, is this, is this move towards the older generation being more economically powerful relative to the younger. Yeah, that's right. I think that, that I mean, the really major shifts there, if we're talking about over a, a period now of probably a couple of decades or so, maybe even a bit more, are, as you said, the stalling of earnings growth, which is something that is obviously affecting the working age population, combined with trends in, in, in wealth accumulation in particular, in terms of what's been happening in the, in the housing market. And that is partly related to the low interest rate environment that you mentioned. We've had this trend now for a while where home ownership rates among younger generations have been plummeting, whereas uh, they're still, of course, very much, much higher uh, amongst older generations. And they uh, have benefited from these huge increases in house prices that we've seen over a long period, which themselves make it harder for many of those uh, younger generations to get on the housing ladder. And the low interest rate environment more generally just makes it harder for young people to accumulate wealth with what earnings they have. I think those are the sort of major things. As you say, 
if anything, though, policy changes in terms of what's been happening to taxes and benefits have tended to reinforce that further in, in shifting the balance of support away from the working age relative to, to those above the pension age. And that strikes me as one of the failures of the last decade is that monetary policy has pushed in one direction, supporting the old relative to the young, not the intention of it, but the effect of it. And then fiscal policy has come in and doubled up behind that. But Carl, pensioners are not protected fully from inflation by any means, are they? I mean, there is there is an issue here. This inflationary issue also does affect negatively a lot of people over pension age. Indeed, it does. And if you're a low-income pensioner, you will be reliant on the state for your income. It might come from pension credit, it might come from the state pension, and you're going to get exactly the same issue as what Rob described for working age benefit recipients. And the, the state pension works in a similar way. You're going to see an increase in cash terms of 3.1% this April, and you'll probably be facing an inflation rate much higher than that. We know that pensioners and low-income pensioners will spend a very large share of their budgets compared to other groups on energy and fuel. But even if you took middle and higher income pensioners and you say, well, where do they get their resources from? How are they indexed? Well, if they retired a few years ago and they bought an annuity with a pension pot, that's almost certainly going to be cash fixed. So they really lose out when inflation is higher than what they had anticipated. If they've retired more recently with a defined contribution pension, they're in a world of what's called pension freedoms, where they have to manage that pot themselves. They choose how to invest it, how to draw it down. Now, that gives them a lot of flexibility, a lot of possibilities for potentially making good choices, but it's much harder to make those choices in a high inflation world. It's much harder to get investments that will deliver real returns. And you might find that people who are reliant on those pots might be drawing the pots down. And perhaps in a few years time, we might find that they've exhausted the pots or drawn them down too quickly. And then finally, we've got a group of people who generally are relatively well off, um, those who've got defined benefit pensions, perhaps because they were somebody who got one in the private sector years ago when they were more common or they're a retired public sector worker. And those pensions won't be keeping up with inflation in the coming year either. The, the private sector ones are often in, indexed by inflation, but only if inflation is below something like 2.5%. So a 2.5% increase in your income with inflation rates much higher than that. That's a real cut. And if you've got a public sector pension, again, you may well be relatively well off relative to your peers, but that will be increased by a lagged measure of inflation too. So pensioners as a whole are going to have a very difficult year. I guess those with private sector defined benefit pensions, those with personal pensions, it could be several years of quite a lot of pain. And the fact is actually that if this kind of shock were to happen in 10 or 20 years time, then it would be even more difficult because very few would even have the protection that they get within defined benefit pensions at the moment, something that we at the IFS are thinking about quite hard is what we see as quite big holes in the pension policies we go forward, which are really opened up by inflation. And essentially, a lot of what we've been talking about today has been about the impacts of inflation on living standards, on how government should respond in terms of what it does to benefits, on what it does to tax receipts, on what it does to real value of spending. We've just talked about inflation as it affects pensions, something that actually we've not talked about much in my working lifetime, actually, because inflation is now at its highest level for 40 years. And that changes, as we've seen, everything about how the Chancellor needs to respond and about how we're thinking about changes that he's making. Anyway, I think we've come to the end of our half hour or so of podcasting. Thank you so much to Carl 
and to Rob. It's been a very long 24 or 36 hours for us. None of us got a great deal of sleep, but we very much enjoyed making this podcast and analysing what Mr Sunak has to say. We'll be back with a regular edition of the IFS Zooms in very soon. Until then, thank you very much indeed for listening.